Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I hope that you're doing very well. This is Sunday. James, what is the day today? Is it the 6th? Uh, it is the 6th. It is the 6th. Look at that. Yes, it uh, is. Good to have backup uh, uh, date elf in my head. And uh, welcome to the Free Domain Radio Sunday philosophy call-in show chat fest brain spittle twister with your head show. Uh, and uh, just as a, to start off with a reminder... That if you would like to call in to talk about uh, a philosophy or whatever is on your mind, the call-in number is 347-633-9636. Or you can go to – what's the URL again, James? Uh, go to uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash P as in Peter, F as in Frank, P as in Peter, Movement Radio, and sign up for a free Blog Talk account, and then once you hit the play button and the chat, uh, the chat will open, and if you scroll up to the top of the page, there is a click-to-talk feature, and if you click that click-to-talk feature, if you have a microphone, uh, that will show up um, on our uh, caller panel, and we can bring you on the air to talk to Stefan. Yes, excellent. Uh, so um, I have uh, a brief introductory topic, uh, and uh, uh, James, if you want to just type into Skype anytime we have someone, uh, I will keep an eye on it, and if I completely ignore you, then uh, uh, you're going to make, I think, a sound we had figured out, like a fairly aged and arthritic pterodactyl. That was a sound that you were going to make if uh, I was not noticing that somebody was, was uh, willing to talk, so uh, we won't practice that now because it might be hard on people's ears, but just know that that is what's happening uh, if you do hear Actually, I thought about uh, putting a tank outside your house. <laughs> Funny you should mention that. Uh, there is, in fact, a tank outside my house, but it's a septic tank, so I think that's okay. Okay. All right. So um, the uh, Barack Obama, I think his, uh, his name is. Um, now, is he still going to do this speech to the schools? I think it was on the uh, – he was going to talk on, on the 12th originally. Is that right? Is he still doing that talk? I can't remember if yes, he, he is, is or isn't. He is, right? And um, uh, there was, uh, if you've ever seen the, the questions, the sort of study guide that's out there uh, includes questions that are really quite, uh, quite startling in a, you know, a titularly free society. The lesson plans available online originally recommended having students, quote, write letters to themselves about what they can do to help the president. And I think uh, in many school districts, there is a 50% dropout rate for high school. In other words, only half the students who've gone through more than a decade of state education end up actually graduating. And to me, this is one of the saddest things about statism is the degree to which it, uh, it harms the, uh, the mental development of children. Um, uh, those uh, who grew up on welfare have statistically uh, significantly lower IQs. Uh, and I think the cause is, is fairly clear. I've got a video on this on YouTube if you're interested. But uh, I think one of the sadder things about that is the degree to which the customer in statism is always blamed. That, to me, is really, really, really one of the most tragic elements of, uh, of statism. And what I mean by that is, can you imagine if I, if I ran a courier company and only 50% of the parcels that were entrusted to my delivery system actually made it to their intended recipient? Wouldn't that just be a ridiculously bad success rate when it came to delivering packages? And, of course, uh, the, uh, the school system is supposed to deliver well-educated students out of the other end, and billions and billions and billions of dollars are spent upon this, and uh, less than half of them even graduate. And it's not like all of those who graduate end up 
uh, with a very good grasp of, of reason and math and science and logic and civics and all that, certainly not of economics. I mean, there's a whole bunch of courses which are not required in schools. You are not required to take economics. Why? Because if you were required to take economics, you might ask some awkward questions of your of your leaders. You are not required to take any courses on law. In fact, very few of those courses are ever offered, certainly in high schools. And uh, that is really tragic as well. In a society where ignorance of the law is no excuse, you're not actually taught anything about the law. So there's lots of things that uh, are really tragic about the state education. But what's really sad is, if you imagine that I'm uh, running a courier company, only 50% of my packages get delivered, that I would sit down and lecture my customers about how they need to write letters to me, to me, about how they're going to help me deliver their packages. Can you imagine the, the brain-bending audacity of such a failure of a company lecturing its customers and saying, you know, my career company is only delivering 50% of your packages. And really, that's your fault, I want you to sit down and I want you to write letters. I want you to write letters. I want you to have homework assignments. I want you to create project plans about how you're going to help me deliver your packages. Such such a thing would be incomprehensible in a voluntary society, in a voluntary interaction. And of course, any school that had as those any school in a free society that had as its statistical results that only 50% of people made it even through the mediocre education of a state system would be out of business in about 35 seconds. But you wouldn't get people lecturing these poor students who are being dismally failed by their society and their government. And it can succeed in the current system because violence does not solve problems. The children are not there voluntarily. The children are there through compulsory education laws. I mean, there are some who are homeschooled, but the parents still have to pay through their property taxes, usually for state education. The children are not there voluntarily. The parents haven't put them into those schools voluntarily. The parents are forced to pay for these schools, regardless of the value differences between the parents and the teachers. And the schools, as funded through a monopoly of violence, have no fundamental incentive for success. Now, this doesn't mean that all public school teachers are bad people who just want to take two and a half months off during the summer. And, uh, and I know a lot of high school teachers work really hard. I know a lot of high school teachers are really frustrated with the current system. But as is always the case, if they can get you to ask the wrong questions, they don't really care about the answers. The question is, of course, why do we need violence to educate people? Why do we need the violence of taxation, the violence of state monopolies, the violence of public sector unions? Why do we need violence to educate children. If we use violence to educate children, what are we fundamentally teaching our children? If children are in school through coercive legislation, if parents are forced to pay for state schools through taxation, through the initiation of force, that is taxation, what are we fundamentally teaching our children? Well, we're teaching our children uh, two things. One, violence works. Violence is good. If you really need to get something done, you really have something important that you need to get done, like helping the poor or the aged or providing health care or educating children. If you have something really important that you need to get done, pull out the guns and everything will be hunky-dory. Well, that's the first thing that we're 
we're teaching them. And then we wonder why violence does not uh, significantly decline over the long run in society. Why violence, if it declines domestically, tends to increase overseas? Because we have a, a system that's fundamentally based on the initiation of force and where something is really important to use violence. Say, well, you know, it's okay to have iPods delivered voluntarily or peacefully or through the free market. It's okay, you know, to have cars delivered that way, or at least it was until recently. But, you know, gosh, when it comes to really important things, that's where we need the government. And it's something that is, uh, is funny and, and tragic. I mean, it, it, the greatest tragedy is what state violent monopoly over education does to the minds of children. Oh, it's absolutely brutal. And then the, to have the audacity to blame children for the negative effects of violent decisions made generations before they were born is staggering. You know, I, there used to be something that was quite common as a, uh, a literary device. Uh, it was very common in sort of... 18th century France, uh, Voltaire used it a number of times. And what it was was to imagine that a man who lived on Mars or a man who lived on the moon or came to Earth and uh, uh, tried to describe how society worked. And it is all, of course, completely absurd because when you don't come from a particular cultural background or you can write from a perspective that's outside of it, you will always end up um, coming up with some very startling conclusions about your society. When I think about our society, I try to think like 200 years into the future. And um, I, I find that a fascinating exercise. really invite you to do it. Because certainly when we look 200 years back into the past, right, if we look at the early 1800s, you know, we see no rights for women, no protection for children. We see slavery. We see uh, a lifespan that was 30 or 35 years. We see people regularly dropping dead of tooth decay. We see just what we would consider to be a, a living hell. Now, I don't think anyone's going to look particularly and say exactly the same way. You know, in that Monty Python, he must be a king because he hasn't got shit all over him view of the Middle Ages. Nobody's going to come look back exactly at our society and say, what a living hell. But what is society and its ethics going to look like in 200 years? Well, society does, you know, with the efforts of people like us, society does tend towards a greater tenderness towards the, the, the vulnerable and it does tend towards a greater equality among the able. And it also does tend to favor, over the long run, reductions in violence. And if you put those three things together and you say, well, how is society going to look in the future? Well, tenderness towards the helpless will be the protection of children will be completely taken for granted. And those who abuse and harm children will be viewed with uh, the kind of horror uh, as those who we would view who beat slaves in the 1800s. There is a growing sense of equality, which means giving a small group of people called the state the right to initiate violence against the vast majority will diminish over time, without a doubt. The tend towards peace will be that in any comparison between a solution involving violence and a solution involving voluntary free market interactions, for sure in 200 years, the vast majority, if not all, of fundamental social problems will be solved with tenderness towards children, with equality among the able, the tender, tenderness towards the helpless, equality among the able, and with violence being, uh, non-violence being the default position to solve all complex social problems. That's where society is going to head. That's where society is going to go, because that is 
the irresistible trend of human ethics to view the helpless and the dependent and the tender, uh, be they aged or sick or children, to view them as worthy of the most staunch protection. And that protection fundamentally is around social approval and disapproval rather than violence. So there will be in the future, they will look back and see that we herded our children into these state lack of concentration camps, these brain-deadening mental gulags, and they will be completely horrified. They will be stunned and horrified that we force children and force, force children into these ridiculously terrible educational, quote, systems, that we force parents to pay for them, whether they approved or disapproved, that we let generation after generation's brains die on the vine in these schools. And then we lectured the poor children caught up in the machinery of this brain eviscerating monstrosity of a system. And that we had the goal to lecture those children on what they should do to improve the system. That really is absolutely astounding. Uh, and it is amazing the degree of gall that we have to make those kinds of statements and comments. That's really, of course, not, what's, is not really what's being talked about. I mean, with regards to Obama's speech to the children. In that people are saying, well, it's like a cult of personality and having children write that uh, they should support the president or what can they do to support the president and so on. I mean, of course it's propaganda, but I mean, all of state education is propaganda. I mean, how could you as a teacher look your children in the eye and say violence is wrong? You shouldn't hit each other. You shouldn't use force against each other. Oh, and by the way, if your parents don't pay for my salary, whether they like me or not, um, uh, thugs will go to their house and take their money at gunpoint. How could we conceivably say that to children that violence is the wrong way to solve problems when the very format of the education system that we use to instruct them is based on violence? This is the fundamental contradictions within our society that people in the future will look back and their mouths will, will just hang open that we had the audacity to make these kinds of, uh, of statements to children. So... That's my brief introduction. I certainly have more, as always. Um, uh, James, do we have anyone uh, hanging off the vine just yet, or are we still waiting? Let me get yes, the number out once more. We do. Um, all we right. Do have, we do have a call, but first of all, I want to mention the number and the click to talk feature again, if you don't mind. Please do. The number to call in to the show to talk to Stefan, to debate him, or you know, questions, or you know, just a quick talk is 347 633 9636. That number again is uh, 347 6339636 alternatively if you do sign up for a uh, blog talk account at blogtalkradio.com and then you can go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash pfp movement radio that's pfp movement radio uh, you can hit the click to talk feature and it will bring you on the air and um, you can talk to Stefan that way uh, it's a it's a way of making a free call if you live outside the United States. Uh, so it's not going to cost you a penny. You're going to come in via the Internet onto our switchboard. So we do have a caller from area code 703, and you are on the air. Okay. Back to you, Steph. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. So, so it's going to be interesting to see what comes out. I'm sure that uh, there will be some modification of Obama's speech uh, itself. Um, but there still will be, of course, this kind of stuff. But it is to me always amazing that uh, people will talk about um, 
particular elements of propaganda within the statist system without talking about statist system uh, re- with regards to propaganda as a whole. Uh, there was a, um, somebody posted something on the Free Domain Radio board, which I thought was, was very interesting and a very adroit and intelligent way of looking at it. Because it is, it is such a fundamentally irrational position that it is really hard to understand why so many people remain statists. It really is like believing in Santa Claus until your dying day and your dying day not being as a young person. But it's really not that hard to, to really sort of understand if you remember that um, most people go through state education. The vast majority of people go through state education, or at least uh, even in private schools, there's a lot of control over what the children are taught and what they're allowed to learn. And it's as easy to understand why most people are status when they go through you know, 12, 13, 14 years of state propaganda as it is to say, well, gosh, I wonder why so many uh, children in Syria end up as Muslims. Well, because, of course, they go through um, religious indoctrination for many, many years. Or why it is that uh, uh, children who would be sent to a religious school, why so many of them would end up believing uh, in, in some sort of God or a particular kind of God, you know, Yahweh or whoever. Uh, and it's because that's what you're told over and over and over again. And in very many ways, you're kind of punished for not um, accepting uh, what, what you're told, right? Uh, and most human beings, uh, you know, perhaps us, uh, we few, we happy few accepted, most human beings are not fundamentally designed to stand firm on principle like Thelma and Louise driving off a cliff, regardless of the negative consequences to basic biological drives like, you know, uh, reproductive success and <laughs> the acquisition of resources through, you know, say, getting a job or getting into university or getting decent marks or whatever. Most human beings will do whatever they can to survive within a particular social environment. And they will almost inevitably make up moral justifications after the fact for what it is that they've had to do in order to survive and flourish in a particular, uh, in a particular environment. So uh, in this situation, we have, uh, you know, children, the, the, the entire, the, the violence of the system, the violence inherent in the system is completely obscured from the children. And, of course, they hear all of the astounding propaganda that uh, is, is identical in form and function to the kind of propaganda that children in Soviet Russia were to get. And we all know this, right? Like uh, uh, Lincoln uh, freed the slaves. Um, <laughs> I'll just go from some U.S. examples. Uh, the Wild West was really violent until the sheriff came to town and made all the bad guys put down their guns. And, oh, my God, those terrible robber barons in the 19th century. Oh, my heavens, they were just making everybody's life a living hell until Teddy Roosevelt and the progressive movement and the government rode in to save uh, the consumer from the rapacious capitalists, you know, with their handlebar mustaches, their top hats, their monocles and their shaved cats on their laps or something like that, all plotting to kill James Bond with sharks powered by lasers. And then we have, of course, the First World War. And now the First World War is something that is not subject to a huge amount of propaganda because there's a lot of confusion. And I've been meaning to do a video series on this for a while. A lot of confusion about the First World War. But the First World War is kind of slithered over. Uh, But um, we go straight into uh, what happened uh, in the 20s. You know, when when it was all, you see, free market. (laughs) It's just so hard to say this stuff with a straight face. It's all free market capitalism in the 1920s, you see. And gosh, don't you know how terrible it was 
there was a boom, there was a crash, and then the free market spiraled into the Great Depression, and then FDR and the Great Society, uh, sorry, and, and the New Deal uh, saved capitalism and put it on a stable path, and then we had to fight the Nazis, uh, and I'm sure he was, uh, it was something to do with the free market, to do with Hitler, and then uh, we had to fight those nasty Russians, and the government had to save us from them, and then the government, uh, you know, helped the blacks with the civil rights movement and helped the poor with the Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, and uh, uh, and then there was all of this energy shortage during the 70s, and those nasty capitalists wouldn't let the government do anything to solve that problem, which was a real shame. And then there was this real estate boom in the 80s. You see, it was just terrible. The free market just completely went nuts uh, in the 80s, and then there was a recession in the early 90s. And then, gosh, don't you know it, there was just another boom, this time in high tech in the 90s. And then the government wrote in to try and save that. And then, you know, uh, out of nowhere... <laughs> Uh, uh, innocent America was attacked on 9-11 and then there was another boom uh, again in the, in the real estate market and in the commodities markets and the government had to ride in and then also all of these crazy banks with their free market imperatives and their greed uh, and then there was this crash and now the government is riding in with the stimulus packages right so it's all about freedom uh, is, is this wild unstable bucking bronco uh, completely insane uh, roller coaster on steroids during an earthquake and the government is the only reason that we cling to the rails at all. We have and a uh, it is really astounding. This amount of propaganda is really astounding and almost inevitable. So uh, I think I've just given you most of what you got in high school. So let's go to a caller who may have something. I'm sure we'll have something more valuable to add. Please go ahead. Uh, this caller goes by the uh, screen name of Laywinder. You're on the air. Laywinder, wider than a mile. Yo. We're chatting now in style someday. You're on the He's using the click to talk feature, so if you are, you need to turn your microphone on or turn your microphone volume up, lay window. Uh, if we're waiting for this person, uh, if somebody else has a, um, uh, if they've typed something in the chat window, uh, I would be, uh, uh, if you want to read it off, I'd be happy to answer any questions that people might have put in there as well. Well, we have another Remember. caller uh, as well, so I'll just put uh, lay window on hold, and this caller is from a Skype. That's the Skype caller. Uh, Skype caller, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, uh, yes. you're a little muffled, uh, but let's let's see if we can't decipher. Okay, yes, yes. all right. Uh, hello, Stefan. Uh, I'm calling from Germany. Uh, uh, it's been brought to my attention uh, or over to the Reddit anarchism that uh, you were seeking to speak to a competent, quote-unquote, competent anarcho-communist syndicalist, etc., etc. So um, it was put forth as sort of a challenge. Uh, here I am. Uh, I heard you want to clarify some stuff. I don't know how competent I am. I'm pretty much... Right now, sorry, just so you understand, it it wasn't. Uh, it, there's no other microphone that you can use or a phone because you, you sound really, really muffled to me. I can sort of vaguely hear you, but I think that other people are having trouble. Uh, mm. The problem is that I am not in uh, the United States and I do not have a telephone that I can use. Okay, maybe just move the mic back a little bit. Uh, it might be a little clearer then. Move, move, just move the mic a little further away, like the from your mouth. How about now? I think that's a little better, yeah. No, it wasn't a challenge. Like, I wasn't necessarily wanting to throw down with a communist. You know, no, it depends no, whether you shaved you. your legs not or not. You, but, uh, but I did want to, did want to sort of ask some questions, yeah. For me, it was a challenge from you. I'm just saying that uh, it was put forth uh, in the Reddit and people like it. But anyway, uh, go on. 
please. Okay, so uh, under anarcho-communism, if I understand it correctly, there is uh, uh, there is no state, obviously, because it's it's the anarcho side. So there's no uh, um, uh, organized monopoly on on violence, the initiation of violence. Exactly. But on the yeah. at the same time, there's no property rights. Is that right? Not exactly. There are no private property rights. There are possessive rights. So there is property in use, as was uh, defined by uh, as is defined by uh, holding some land or holding uh, some means of production and making use of it. So, for example, a farmer working his own land will be able to uh, uh, consider to be the owner. It will simply mean that uh, a factory owner will not be able to con- uh, claim ownership of this factory while uh, there are 500 other people working on it and he can sit on the back and just uh, skim the profit. Okay, sorry, let me just, sorry, and I'm going to have to interrupt a lot because I, I always want to make sure that I understand. So a farmer who works the land owns the land because he mm-hmm. works it, but a, a factory yeah. owner can't own the factory because other people work there. Exactly. You can only own what you personally use. So in the case of a factory, for example, it will be a case of communal ownership. It won't be a specific owner. Okay, so um, so what that means is that if I need a hundred million dollars to build a factory, I get together with five hundred friends, and we all put in what fifty thousand dollars, and then we all become owners of the factory because we've all come up with the capital to build the factory. Is that right? It is a bit of uh, weird the way you put it. Uh, you put it. Um, uh, the concept of uh, anarcho-communism is not that uh, you buy the means of production from the capitalist and then work it. That is also already possible within the capitalist system via the cooperative movement. Uh, the idea that uh, of anarcho-communism is that there is no um, uh, there is no uh, Property, uh, there's no, nobody using private property anymore. We have discarded this concept. Usually, this can, as a revolutionary myself, uh, I cannot uh, consider that this is possible to reform it. So, um, uh, it won't happen by the workers slowly buying the means of production from the capitalists. It will happen through a revolution. Okay, can and, you just uh, can you explain to me? Uh, sorry to interrupt, but can you explain to me? And this is something I really I'm not trying to you know corner you. I just don't understand. How is it? Uh, how do the means of production come into being? If uh, if mm-hmm. if uh, in anarcho communist. So let's just say we're starting from a sort of pre-industrial revolution situation. Uh, if 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 nobody can if, sorry if if nobody can can profit, let's say, from building a factory, uh, uh, how is it that factories will come into being? Okay, first of all, uh, you do not move from a private society to anarcho-communism. Anarcho-communism, okay, this is obviously a point of contention, but uh, from my point of view, you cannot move to this system without passing through capitalism at some point, in the sense that you cannot move towards capitalism without passing through feudalism. Um, in, in that sense, we are uh, already have the means of production available, we already have the productive capability, the factories, the farms, the industry. So uh, what we do is uh, we take it over. We, um, the people who work in the factory uh, ex- expropriate it. Um, 
Now, if we are already in a system, if we are already in the anarcho-communist society, and we find the need uh, that we say we need uh, a new public transportation or we need to create uh, extra food or something, then obviously the community sees that they do not have enough food, that they need public transportation, they hold uh, a meeting, they hold a, a, a meeting of the commune, decide yes, we need this and that uh, productive capability, and they allocate resources through uh, uh, discussing and uh, etc. They uh, figure out what they need and they allocate resources to uh, build it. Uh, about it. Look, I, I'm just can I just ask you another question? Um, have you ever been an entrepreneur yeah. or a business owner yourself? Uh, no. Okay. And and the reason that I'm asking that is not, again, I'm not trying to say that that makes your argument right or wrong, but if you had a mm-hmm. business plan, like if you, if even in the current system, right, if you took some, a business plan to your investors and you'd said, well, I want to build a factory and the way that I'm going to do it is I'm going to figure out what I need and then allocate resources, right? No, no, no one would invest in you because that's not a plan. That's wish, wishful thinking, if that makes sense, right? Because the question is, where are those resources coming from? How are they to be allocated without prices? Because, of course, if you don't have a free market, you don't have prices. And mm-hmm. you need, you know, if you don't mind me saying so, you need more detail in how things are going to actually work in society. I mean, I've bored people from here to eternity, perhaps, with my thoughts about how things might work in a stateless society with property rights and so on. But I think, I think you're going to need to work a little harder than to say, well, there'll be all of this stuff that was created through capitalism, and we're just going to take that over. That's going to be, and then if we want new stuff, we'll just allocate resources. That, to me, is not very rigorous uh, thinking, if that makes any why, sense. Why is that not uh, possible? I mean, you already said that uh, if one wants to get venture capital, they need to uh, convince some people to give it to him. Is that not the same thing as... Uh, uh, figuring out what is needed and uh, allocating the resources to get it. Uh, and the difference is, is that instead of convincing the people who have the money and uh, convincing them that you are going to make money by doing this, so in, in, in the difference between uh, what I'm suggesting and what you are suggesting is that uh, in your case you allocate uh, according to uh, profit, according to what will make the most money, but in my case, I, in an anarcho-communist case, we allocate according to what is needed. All right, but let me let me sort of explain let me explain why I asked this question. And I, you know, I I apologize if I sound a little bit heated. It's got nothing to do with you. I really do appreciate your call, but let me tell you why I'm I'm putting this question or this objection up, and then you can tell me if if what I'm saying makes any sense. Like, if I okay. want to open if I want to open. Um, a pizza restaurant, a little, a little pizza. If I want to open a convenience store, right, then, then what I need to do yeah. is I need to really understand uh, convenience stores. I need to understand my market. I need to do research into figuring out how many people are going to walk by on the sidewalk. I need to figure out what kind of products the people in the neighborhood want. I need to figure out how often they're going to be sold. I need to figure out how many times I'm going to need to reorder. I'm going to have to figure out how much money I'm going to need to invest in opening the store and advertising it and what where the products are going to have to be placed in the store. I'm going to have to develop relationships with all these different vendors. And I mean, it's hugely complicated just to open a little convenience store in in this world, Uh right? And so if you're talking about rewriting something as fundamental as property rights, if you're talking about how society as a whole should work, 
I think that you should put at least as much effort into delineating how that actually is going to work as, say, somebody who wants to open a little convenience store. That's what I mean when I say you need to put a little bit more time and effort rather than just saying people will figure out what they want and then allocate resources. Because if you, you, you couldn't even open, you couldn't even start a newspaper route with that kind of thinking. And I think you just need to work a little harder to, to flesh out how this is actually going to work. Because I think it's easy to say stuff mm -hmm. like, let's be successful, but it's really hard to actually figure out how this stuff is going to work in practice. The, the mistake you're doing is that you assume that I do not have a general idea of how this is going to work. And no, I'm not talking about a general idea of how it's going to work. I'm not talking about a general idea. Yeah, I'm talking about specific that, examples that, that would, would... Sorry, go ahead. That's the mistake you're doing. You are wasting too much time uh, figuring out all the little details on how everything would work in a possible future society. But this is utopianism. Uh, what you're doing is trying to visualize by yourself a specific community, a specific society, a specific system, and how this will work when it's perfectly set up. But the world is not perfect. The world will never go according to your plans. And you're also missing the most important thing, which is the way to progress to, to this society. You, you may visualize, you may think about the society that you, you may imagine that will work perfectly, but uh, all this effort that you're wasting on, wasting not to work well, all this effort that you are putting into uh, thinking of this system uh, is not put into figuring out how you're going to move there. The anarchists, on the other hand, do the opposite. We get a general idea, and we can, if we need, we can go into uh, much more detail. I mean, uh, the theory, the movement behind anarcho-syndicalism and anarcho-collectivism, uh, they have gone uh, to great lengths uh, to uh, describe the possible society. But uh, what we always say is that um, the way the society will work, the way it will be organized, will not be thought by some uh, people in some ivory towers. It will be thought by the people living in that society. Uh, we give the generic guidelines. We give the idea that um, we do not need property rights. We do not need uh, money. Or we do need money. There are uh, forms of anarchism that do require money, like mutualism. And um, the people that will live in that society, they will uh, figure out according to the needs that they have. And this is something that practically has worked, for example, in uh, uh, anarchist experiments that have happened throughout history, uh, people have figured out at the point, at the moment, what to do. So anarchists are much more interested in figuring out what we need to do to pro progress towards that. How, how are we going to get rid of the state? How are we going to get rid of capital? What are we going to uh, do to stop um, the army and the, and the uh, counter-revolution from uh, destroying what we have achieved. And um, the, the minor details, uh, the, the very specific stuff, uh, these are easy to imagine that the people who will do this revolution, who will reach the situation, will find the solution that they need. Okay, so I, I appreciate that. So what you're saying is that we shouldn't figure out how factories would practically get built in the absence of private property. No, what we should do I'm is we should figure out. Let me let me see the finish. Can, and I'd like to. Uh, I would like. So we'll move off of that because you're saying that your expertise is uh, uh, is is in how we we get to a stateless society, which I think is obviously a very very important question. I've been putting a lot of work into that over the last year. 
So, uh, and I, I've sort of got it down to about a minute, and you've had a lot of experience in researching and explaining these kinds of things. So let me, let me do this to you. I'm sorry to put you into this kind of spot, but I think it would be really helpful. Uh, take, take a minute, and if you could explain to me how it is that we're going to move from the existing system uh, to uh, anarcho, uh, anarcho-communism. Okay. There are various uh, obvious um, uh, proposals from the various schools of anarchism, which is basically the difference of the schools. Uh, in an anarcho-communist system, uh, from, my, from my point, which is uh, also uh, anarcho-syndicalist, it is going to be done through um, uh, unionized work, so uh, workers um, fighting back against the capital through unions, uh, through strikes, through takeovers, through uh, all this stuff that uh, makes people control the means of production. On the other hand, uh, outside of the syndicate of the syndicalist uh, aspect, you can have um, people who uh, unionize or uh, communize um, according to neighborhoods, according to, uh, to cities, so uh, according to villages, so you can have um, uh, neighborhood unions performing rent strikes or um, performing other direct action like... Uh, All right, so that's your minute. Like, Thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, so uh, we're going to, I really do appreciate you calling in. Um, perhaps we can try this again. Uh, we'll try maybe just a one-on-one -on -one call because uh, you're very muffled and people are having a hard time understanding. So um, okay, I'll, I'll stop this now, but I really do appreciate you calling in. And, and the, the, I do want to learn more about the specifics of um, libertarian socialism. Uh, Chomsky is a libertarian socialist, if memory serves me right. I, I really do want to learn more about it. I certainly don't want to uh, just take... Uh, my particular uh, arguments for, uh, you know, no state and private property uh, for granted. I don't want to take them as, as axioms. I always want to hear uh, as strongly as I can the opposing viewpoint. But uh, I'm just going to, I'm going to make a suggestion uh, to you. And this is, again, this is, you know, pumping my own historical resume. So maybe you'll accept this or maybe you won't. And, and this is not just for you, of course, but for everyone who's listening to this. Um, you know, when I ask you how is this going to come about and you basically say unions will do it or, you know, workers will do it through strikes and so on. To me, that's like going to a, an investor and saying, I've got a great idea for a business. And he says, well, how are you going to make money? And you say customers. And it's like, OK, but, <laughs> but what does that actually mean? Right. So I think um, uh, I think it's really important, important, important. You don't actually have to do this, but it's such a useful exercise to uh, imagine and I would really suggest just doing it. Um, try and figure out, you know, if you, if you had a business or you had a proposition, because a philosophy is a proposition. Uh, it is, uh, of course, it's like a business in a way, but it, it really is a proposition. And if you're going to say how things are going to work in a future society, you're absolutely right. Not everyone has to get everything right about everything, because that's obviously impossible, right? But I think you do have to have some pretty sophisticated basics down, or at least some possibilities about how things can be worked out, right? So I had a debate last week um, with Jan Helfeld where we talked, or at least I talked about how things can work in the absence of government. Is that exactly how it's going to work? I guarantee you that it's not. But there are a number of principles involved that are very helpful. To, to figure that out. And I would strongly, strongly, strongly suggest to people, if you're going to really criticize uh, a system, that you spend some time in it to make sure that you're not susceptible to propaganda, right? So if you think that, um, 
business owners, let's say, if, if you're on the left-leaning spectrum or the communist or socialist spectrum, if you think that, that factory owners or business owners have all of this power, then my suggestion is, um, you know, talk to some actual business owners or better yet, become a business owner, you know, for a year, for a year, let's say, just take over a store or take over a franchise or take over a paper route or something. Spend some time in the free market if you really want to criticize the free market. I would also say, just so it doesn't sound like I'm picking on communists, I would also say that it's very important for people who praise the free market to spend some time in the free market so that they really understand what's going on. I mean, as I've written about before, it has always struck me as sad and somewhat pitiful that free market economists stay as far away from the free market as humanly possible. Uh, in their uh, academic uh, ivory towers uh, in high orbit, right? They stay as far away from the free market as humanly possible. I think I've proven uh, to whatever degree you consider reasonable that it's possible to make not too bad a living uh, uh, educating people uh, about some important ideas without needing the protection of a state union like academia or whatever. And I would really, you know, I've strongly urged without any response for people who say... Like free market economists always say to other people, you should give up all these perks because the free market is better. And then you say, well, why don't you leave academia and talk to people about the free market in the free market? Actually use the free market that you praise. And they're like, well, I don't want to give up my goodies. It's like, well, then what the the frack are you telling other people to give up their goodies if you're not willing to give up yours, right? So I think it's really, really important to spend time in the free market if you're going to criticize the free market. Like if you think that factory owners have all of this power I think it's really important to just sit down, like go out into the world, get out of the library, right? Put down Pravda, right? Go out into the world and actually talk to people and live in the system that you're either praising or criticizing because you will learn so much more from actually being in the free market, actually being a business owner, actually running a business, actually trying to win uh, over customers and please customers. And you will understand that in the free market, and I'm not talking about you know, state-protected, quote, markets, right? But in the actual free market, and the software industry is, real, is really good, you know, just set up a business to, to design some websites. You can teach yourself that skill in a, a month or two, and you can try and get customers in another month or two. You can actually be in the free market. You can actually try and work in the system that you're criticizing or praising. You will learn a huge amount more about the free market just being in the free market for a year then you will, I, I submit, then you will studying all the economics books in the world. And that doesn't mean that economics books are unimportant. They're hugely important. But it is really, really important that we do not get our learning about the world from books alone. Scientists have their experiments. Even psychologists have their experiments. They have their statistical averages. They do try to get out into the world to test their theories. And... I would really, really strongly suggest that people who want to theorize about social organization spend as much time in the meat and drink of the society that they, they are criticizing, right? Now, you could say to me, well, Steph, you, you criticize statism, but you've never been a politician, and that is entirely true. Um, but uh, uh, I spent uh, 13 years in state education in a variety of different countries, and then I spent uh, another seven years or eight in higher education and academia, um, studying the state and also interacting with the state in the form of state-protected professors and so on. 
So I, and I also did work for the government uh, off and on. And I also, when I was in the, in the free market, I did work with the government, uh, with government agencies on a variety of contracts. So I, I have had a lot of experience dealing with, uh, with the state and with its representatives in various forms. So I think I'm okay, it's okay for me to talk about that. And I've really worked from first principles, but when it comes to talking about property rights and the free market and, and the power of business owners and so on, you know, I, I can always tell, I can always tell people who haven't actually done it, but have only read about it because they, they have very predictable opinions that are not tempered by actual experience in the system that they're criticizing. So that's just, again, I've said this before and I'll probably say it again. Uh, it is a strength that I bring to bear because I've had to write prospectus to, to, to get investment uh, because I have, <laughs> I put entirely too much of my own money in the co-founding of a company and had some really, really sweaty times where I did not feel like the master of the universe and all-powerful business owner, capitalist, pig dog, uh, trying to get business when we were running out of money. Uh, it is a very exciting and stressful and challenging thing to do, and it requires a lot of very detailed specifics. And I would just say that people who haven't gone through that process have not gone through a real kind of rigor where... You know, your own money is on the line. Your own reputation is on the line. Your own career is on the line. There's nothing that humbles you more than the free market. And uh, I can always tell people who have not spent a lot of time in the free market because they have a kind of prejudicial arrogance. And I, again, I'm not talking about you in particular here, or the, the, the last caller, but they just they, they seem to have very easy answers to stuff. Uh, you know, well, the unions will do it. And it's like in business that just <laughs> in the free market that would never cut it as a plan. And I think that if we want to rewrite the basic rules of society, which is an incredibly risky thing to do all around, I think that we want to put as much, at least as much effort into it as if we were opening a little grocery store or a corner pizzeria. That's all I'm asking. You don't have to, you know, spend 25 years working on it like I have, but at least put the amount of effort into planning the future utopia as you would into planning the um, snack shelf in a grocery store. That's all I'm saying. You know, just that amount of effort will please me because there's nothing more humbling than that. So I hope that, uh, I hope that makes some sense to people. Uh, how's our call queue, Mr. J? Did I scare everybody off with my rambling? Uh, we do have some callers. Uh, looks like they're using the click-to-talk feature, which is excellent. Uh, we do have a gentleman by the name of Wan716. I just want to give the... Um, the caller number out again. The number to call the show is 347-633-9636. That number again is 347-633-9636. It's also on the screen uh, and, and on channel two of peacefreedomprosperity.com. And if you are an international caller and um, would just like to call in, um, you don't want to you know, bear the expense, you can create a blog talk account at blogtalkradio.com and then uh, tune into us at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash PFP movement radio. So I'm going to bring uh, one seven one six onto the air. Actually, Wan, it's great that you've called in because I've really been looking forward to doing a rousing rendition of Wake Me Up Before You Go Go with you. So let me just pull out my pants real tight here. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's a little spotty, but uh, give it a shot. Go ahead. Uh, it's a little spotty, but uh, give it a shot. Okay, hold on. Um, well, I was I was thinking about the debate that you had last weekend, right? I was with Han or whatever. Um, I was just I just kind of saw that his point of view. I, there was 
there's a problem between you, the communication between you guys, and uh, I saw that his point of view was more of how, how we can get there from here, right? How how can we get or achieve uh, freedom and, uh, you know, from here? And your point of view, you know, of course, you explained pretty well is that, you know, this is how it works when we get there. This is how it's going to work, and this is how we're going we're gonna to sustain the society, right? But um, I think the question, like the, the ultimate question that I'm asking you is, um, you know, how do, how do we suggest that we start working towards that goal, right? Because we can't just simply snap our fingers and have them, you know, have the state be gone, right? All right. So, I mean, that's a great, great question. Uh, I am um, the. I used to be able to write like seven books in, in 18 months, but that has unfortunately ground to a much slower pace since my daughter was born. Um, and so I'm not going to be able to give you a, a very long answer, but let me give you a very short answer that is uh, some of the stuff that I'm working on. Social, fundamental social change takes, you could very much, very strongly argue that it's, it takes about 200 years to, um, to achieve fundamental social change. So I'm talking about the very beginning of the abolitionistic movement to the actual abolition of slavery. Eh, it's about 200 years. From Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley uh, writing Vindication of the Rights of Women in the 18th century, if I remember rightly, to the actual emancipation of women, uh, 150, 200 years. Uh, there is um, uh, there is a lot of examples of uh, uh, the end of slavery to uh, the end of Jim Crow, um, hundred years. You could say hundred and twenty-five years, and uh, so there's lots and lots of examples of social movements taking um, hundred to two hundred years. There has not been a bigger social movement in my mind than the consistent application of the non-aggression principle. Um, the elimination of the state as a, a methodology of, quote, solving problems. It's the biggest leap forward that can be conceived. Um, it is even bigger than the free market. And the free market, of course, took, uh, you know, what, from the dawn of the, of the earth, four billion years, right? But the, the, the free market took uh, thousands of years to, to, uh, to develop. Uh, and uh, this is even bigger than the free market because the free market is not sustainable in the face of statism, but where there is no government, the society and the free market and all of the progress that can be imagined is, is sustainable. Uh, so it is the, the biggest leap forward is the consistent application of moral principles in society. There is nothing bigger that can occur in society. So if it takes 100 to 200 years for a social change to, for really an unprecedented social change, right? So from the beginning when, uh, uh, you know, how long did it take for um, not beating your wife to, to become a moral ideal. Well, the rule of thumb, you know, we say, oh, it's a good rule of thumb. Well, the rule of thumb was that you could not hit your wife with a stick larger or wider than your thumb. Uh, and that was considered to be uh, good. In fact, uh, you know, she would deserve it if she crossed you or whatever. And uh, how long did it take for then spousal abuse or wife abuse to become wrong? Well, about 200 years, right? So you could say, well, the internet has accelerated all of that, but the internet accelerates everything for everyone, right? It's like saying, well, I've got these really great new sneakers that let me run faster, so I'm going to win this race. It's like, well, how much do they cost? Five bucks. Can anyone buy them? Yes. Well, it's no longer an advantage because everyone can buy them. So it's true that uh, we can have conversations that would have been very difficult, if not impossible, before, but so can everyone else. So I don't consider it a particular advantage. So we're not going to... Uh, live to see a stateless society. We're not going to live to see a world without war. We're not going to live to see a country without a state. 
in my mind. And that's seasteading and all this. I mean, sort of established countries. Um, more than 50% of people in most modern societies, most Western societies, gain direct or indirect, significant amounts of direct or indirect, indirect revenue from the state. They're not going to give that up. They're going to fight like tooth and nail to keep it. So how do we um, achieve a free society? Well, um, we continue to make the point as consistently uh, and as passionately and as powerfully and with as much respect as is possible so that the consistency and virtue of our position becomes more and more clear. But it is a multi-generational project, freeing the world from violence, freeing the world from coercion, freeing the world from statism, freeing the world from religion, from superstition, from bigotry, from pettiness, from narrow-mindedness, from abuse, from violence, uh, is, is a multi-generational project. I think we have to accept that or um, we're going to be crazy and addicted to politics, right? Because it's not going to work. There is a strong school of thought, uh, which I subscribe to to a large degree, which says that the history of society is the history of childhood. And what that means is that um, uh, as children are treated better in society, society itself will improve. That you don't work to overturn institutions. You work to outgrow those institutions. And so the less that aggression and violence are used to bully and frighten children, the less people will be susceptible to being bullied and frightened as adults. The less that aggression is used to attack and control children, the fewer criminals we will end up because crime has its roots strongly, if not almost exclusively, in the abuse of children. When we have fewer criminals, when we have people much less susceptible to being bullied and controlled by some sort of hierarchy, and this is why I'm um, anti-theist uh, against religion, because religion puts uh, this uh, infection of uh, all-powerful and a vindictive authority in people's heads, which translates so easily into the concept of the state. But we have to raise children to be happy and to be free and to be confident and to be secure so that they don't feel that, that either they need to be bullied or if there isn't an agency out there threatening and bullying everybody else with guns, that society is going to fall apart. And the only way that we can achieve that in the long run, in my opinion, is to raise children without aggression, without parenting them through aggression, through punishment, through control, through violence, through intimidation, through the threat of the withdrawal of affection. Most people first experience authority through, uh, there are three fundamental, right? through teachers, through parents, and through priests, if, if uh, there's a religion in the, in the household. And um, frankly, there's not much we can do about teachers because the state already controls education. Um, there's not much we can do about priests because for obvious reasons. Um, it has always been my strong position that, uh, that treating children better, that, uh, and it's certainly not my, my opinion alone, right? I mean, I'm, I'm just one of many, many, many voices uh, making this uh, same claim that children should be raised without aggression. Children should be raised without coercion. Children should be raised without threats, without punishment, without bullying. And through that, what happens is children who grow up uh, tall and confident and free and healthy and happy, they will look at the state as ridiculous. 
They will look at the idea that we need a central, violent, coercive authority within society as ridiculous because they will grow up in a benevolent and positive and happy and non-punitive world. And you can't graft bigotry onto somebody. You can't, you can't graft small-mindedness and fear later on in their life. Like nobody who's 60 says, hey, I'm going to finally succumb to peer pressure and start smoking. Nobody who's not a racist just wakes up when they're 50 and says, damn it, I'm going to hate this group or that group or whatever. You have to, uh, if you're going to inflict irrationalities, you have to inflict them uh, on the young, right? Nobody, who's, uh, nobody who was never raised with religion is going to sit there uh, when they're 70 and say, I'm going to find Jesus. I mean, it's just not going to happen. It has to be in the environment to begin with for it to be possible later on in life. And so in the same way, we raise children to, to not be afraid of authority, to, but to view authority as a voluntary resource, which is how I'm trying to be as a parent. And I must tell you, it's working completely magnificently. Every single theory that I ever had about parenting so far is just working completely magnificently. I have a huge amount of authority over my daughter. When I, I, I tell her not to do something, she will absolutely stop doing it. I have never raised my voice at her. I have never yelled at her. I have never punished her. It is a simple, light tone of voice. And because I have such an enormous amount of fun and affection and enjoyment of her company, uh, when I say to her, uh, Isabella, no. She simply stops what she's doing. There's no fight. There's no conflict. Now, I'm still only eight and a half months in, but still, uh, I'm you know, gaining more confidence about this as an approach. And it really is as a multi-generational project. We simply have to raise people uh, to, uh, with such strength and confidence and good humor and uh, uh, the ability to negotiate without, uh, without anger or without rage, without um, uh, abuses and so on, that they simply won't be afraid of authority. They will look upon, upon authority as a practical and voluntary and healthy resource to help them through life. In the same way that I view a masseuse as somebody to help me with you know, muscle relaxant, right? Not as a, as a tyranny. And it is in raising children in, in nonviolent environments, in non-punitive environments, that we end up with a society without that kind of hierarchy. That's the approach that uh, uh, I think is significant. And uh, I'm a, a big fan of Lloyd DeMoss. You can go to psychohistory.com for more on the history of social institutions as really the history of childhood writ large. And uh, I hope that you will take uh, availability of that resource. I've also read, read a book of his, um, The Origins of War and Child Abuse, which is also very, very interesting. So... I would really strongly urge you to to focus on that. You know, how is it that you can help children be better protected? How is it that you can uh, be a better parent if you are or if you're going to be yourself? How can you educate yourself into nonviolent methods of, uh, of communication and authority within your own life and within your own family? That, to me, is stuff you can really do. And I think that that is the only thing that gives us fundamental traction uh, when it comes to building a freer world. He's probably still muted. James, do we have someone else? Oh, yeah, Alice Miller. If you hadn't heard of her, she's really, really good, too. So. Uh, yes, we do. Ha uh, why did you want to bring uh, 1716 back on? To no, no, I think I gave probably okay. an overexhaustive answer to his question, okay. as usual. So let's uh, keep another caller coming in, if that's all right. All right. Next caller is uh, Laywinder. You're on the air. We tried talking to Laywinder earlier on, and he went out and came back in. Lay window, going once, going twice, three times. Nope. Okay, we do have another caller. Uh, the, the number to call in 
is uh, 347-633-9636. That number is 347-633-9636. Or you can use the click to talk on blogtalkradio.com. Just create a free account on there. And then go to uh, peace. Uh, sorry, go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash PFP Movement Radio. Uh, this caller is from area code eight one three. You are on the air. Hi, Stefan. It's Chris. How you doing? Oh, hi, Chris. Hi. Uh, I was listening to what you were saying about uh, child rearing and uh, just kind of the non-aggression applied to children. And uh, I, I submit. Uh, this, I, I don't know who said this, but it was uh, an archaeologist, and he said, you know, one of his guiding principles when he was studying ancient civilizations was if he wanted to understand what was important to a society, he looked at how the children played. And so that's that's kind of a big concept. I mean, it's non-aggression is a big idea, and it's you know it, it broaches piety at a certain level. But how do we teach our children to pre- play, even if it's not aggressive? And the thought is. Well, we, what are we teaching our kids right now? We're teaching them to be, to require constant stimulation. We're we're teaching them to be materialistic and play with Barbie dolls in the big mansion. We're teaching them to go GI Joe with the guns and run around and shoot people. And even though we may not be saying, you know, hitting and punching and hurting people is good, we're teaching them that these are the things we find important. So, in contrast to what you were saying, sometimes that non-aggression goes even deeper. It goes to that sense of, well, what is fair and what is good? You know, do, do we want to, um, do we, we, we need competition. We need games like checkers and all that kind of stuff because it lets kids know that, you know, it, it's a good thing to try and get better at something. But where is that fine line between play and aggression? I don't know the answer to it. I just throw it out there as a different thought. No, that's that's a very, very, I mean, I think that's a brilliant, brilliant question, and thank you for bringing that up. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I've, be, I've been conscious of this for a long time, and I'm very, very conscious with regards to, to my daughter that um, it's not, you know, ch- children will absorb empirically what is going on in their world. Um, and I can see this with my daughter. She is so fundamentally empirical. Uh, it's actually a beautiful thing to see. And I'm, I'm sort of developing a, a bit of a theory, uh, seeing her go through the, the development stages um, about where people may get stuck in terms of, because each one of these phases is very particular to, I've done a whole 17-part free series of introduction to philosophy, which goes through, you know, all the way from metaphysics to epistemology to uh, ethics to to politics and all that and seeing my daughter's development really helps me to understand where it is that people may get stuck in their thinking and I think it has a lot to do with with how they're parented at particular phases in their life but one of the things that I really really want my daughter to understand is that the non-aggression principle that I live with her that I will never intimidate her that I will never frighten her that I will never threaten withdrawal of affection that I will never um, uh, be, be angry with her. I mean, it would be, it's crazy to be angry at a baby, of course, right? Um, but it's not just her, right? I mean, I don't raise my voice at, uh, at my wife, of course, right? Uh, if, I'm, if she's in the backseat of the car and I'm going through a drive-through and something's going wrong, I'm not going to yell at someone there. Like, I think it has to be something where she sees it as a consistent thing. 
You know, like it would be if I go and yell at someone at a drive through and then, oh, honey, it's OK. Right. I mean, that would not be that would not make much sense. So I think um, like like everything in the world, when we want to make the world a better place. Right. It's the old MJ song. Right. You, you start with the man in the mirror. If I want my daughter to uh, to respect the non-aggression principle, then I have to live the non-aggression principle. And that doesn't mean never getting angry. That doesn't mean uh, 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 never raising my voice. Uh, if obviously, if somebody was, you know, bearing down on her on a bicycle, I would raise my voice extraordinarily high to make sure that she was safe. So it's not about, you know, being Zen and having no emotions. And I certainly uh, have no shortage of passion for better or for worse in my in my heart. But it really is around consistently living the uh, the non-aggression principle in, in all of my relationships uh to be respectful and polite where appropriate and it doesn't mean never get angry right because i don't want to you know i don't want i don't want her to get the idea that anger is unhealthy right because then that's particularly for women that's something that's all too reinforced in society but uh if i want to teach my daughter how to be good um lecturing her is going to do worse than nothing because if she sees me lecture her about uh, you know don't use aggression and then i use aggression in my life I'm not only wrong, but I'm also hypocritical. And uh, hypocrisy is a terrible thing for a child to see in a parent. So uh, so I think that uh, it really, really is important uh, to just live that value of non-aggression uh, in in your life as, as widely as possible. I'm not saying I'm perfect. Please don't, don't get that impression, right? Uh, I certainly do my very best uh, and uh, try to... Uh, uh, and I think she also has to know that uh, since I'm completely devoted to her and, and love spending time with her, uh, that if I don't want her to do something, it's not because I'm just being arbitrary and mean. Right? I think I build trust uh, through through giving her as many opportunities and helping her to explore as much as possible. Right? Like I'm the dad in the family, which means I do stuff that my wife is not always that comfortable with. Right? So I will take her and and let her play in the grass. And you know, my, there are bugs. You know, it's like yeah, well, you know, there were bugs in in uh, in the Stone Ages as well, and we're still here. Right? So. So it's giving her opportunities to explore, giving her the chance to exercise her courage, giving her the chance to um, really exercise her, you know, growing the uh, strong body. And uh, uh, I think uh, really being there to help her to enjoy the world and to to live the values uh, because she's going to get my values long before she gets language. She's going to get who I am as a human being long before I can tell her. It's a different, right? We can manipulate adults, right? So we can I can go into some bar with a, I don't know, a wig and, uh, uh, you know, some sort of cool clothes that obviously somebody else will have bought me or whatever. And I can go in and I can create a different impression. Uh, if I'm going for a job, I can fake my way through some interview. I can claim to have credentials that I don't have. I can wear a suit and shave when I normally never would. I can do all of those things as adults. But uh, children, they don't work that way. They don't work that way. Who you are is completely clear to a child your child long before you can ever tell them who you are and if and they will ask you who you are right but if you say to your child this is who i am and these are my values and their experience of you has been quite the opposite then uh you mean you've done a real fundamental blow to the relationship and to your credibility and so on so uh, i just sort of wanted to to point that out that uh, children are very empirical if you live your values around your children as much as humanly possible again recognizing that imperfection is the nature of biology but um uh, that to me is how we teach uh, children to uh, uh to not either feel the need for or a terror of uh, hierarchical authority of the of the uh, violent kind 
Indeed. Well, on the on your uh, subject before this, you spoke of this 200-year cycle uh, before large social change takes effect, and it seems like um, that you know I agree with you. The, the death of statism is afoot, and we are reaching that. You know, we're a little bit past that 200 years, the rise of the United States statism, but we're quickly approaching it, just given all the economic turmoil that's going on right now. And so I kind of feel like if there was ever a time to push theory down to the people, it would be now. Get people talking about the right ideas. And so you are doing an excellent job of of pushing the theory down to the people so that it's more accessible. Now, just as a, as a tangent to this, uh, just to throw it out there, there's always going to be a certain amount of people that just don't care. They're going along with whatever they think the smart people decided for them. So I have to acknowledge that and say you're not going to get 100% buy-in ever. Now, what, is, what are we trying to get people to buy into? Well, we're trying to get them to buy into a system where their morality is not imposed on the rest of us. You want your morality, you go join your group, we like our morality. We stay to our group. But it doesn't mean you can, we can't be neighbors. It just means that the, we're going to let you live your life the way you feel it's appropriate. And so that concept, as far as all organized forms of government have ever been, it, it's never been existent. It's never been part of the structure. And so I did a little research after last time I called in, and I started to look through all the different political science. Sorry, sorry, just before you, I'm sorry, I do apologize for interrupting. I just wanted to clarify one point, and I, I promise not to interrupt you again. But just to be annoyingly precise, it is not a, to me, it's not a question of morality being imposed upon others. It is a question of violence not being imposed upon others. Right. So uh, if I have a a quote morality, which says I should be able to strangle your cat, then clearly I would be imposing my morality upon you through that initiation of violence. So it's not a matter of imposing morality. I think that's a bit of a red herring and that might be confusing to people because I have a morality called self-defense. Right. So if you come running at me with a machete uh, and I can I can't get away and the only thing I can do is, you know, shoot you in the knee, then I'm going to shoot you in the knee. And that is that imposing my morality. No, I'm preventing you from imposing your violence upon me. So I, I just wanted to point that out, that it's really around the initiation of violence that should not be imposed, and that to not impose one's morality on someone else could be very confusing for people, and I would just make that request that you just be a bit more precise with that term. Well, it, it, what you're refining is the word impose more than morality, because when I say impose morality, that's just what's right and what's wrong. It's you can choose to subscribe to this morality or I'm going to impose this morality. That's the, that's the line you're defining. And so I think that, you know, there is no form of government in existence that did not always try to capture impose versus choose. I mean, they'll give you the illusion of choosing. So after going and doing a little bit of research, there is a philosophy that, that, that really tried to capture that idea. It's called civil societarianism. And essentially what it means is, we believe the government is the night watchman, and that's it. We believe the legislative authority belongs to the people that choose to subscribe to it. So, you know, originally I said you've got a state and you've got a church for lack of another institution that's large enough to fit the gap. But there's tons of them. Like if I said, you know, I really like, you know, fast cars, and so I'm going to subscribe to a group that says we like fast cars and we're going to... Um, we're going to say that it's all right for you to have this district of town and these roads for, you know, racing or whatever. Well, that's going to get in the way of other people's decisions or in other groups that say, well, we want to drive safely on those roads. So you have a bit of a localized conflict between the two groups. And what no, I don't think right you do. Wrong. 
Sorry, I don't think that you do. I mean, I can't imagine how you, that would be a conflict. And the reason I, I don't want to interrupt again, but just since you are, since you sort of made that point, um, uh, if people want to go and race cars fast, they would go to a racetrack, right? They would not go to a residential street. The reason being that to build a residential street, you're going to have the greatest amount of profit from the widest amount of traffic. And that means that you're not going to allow people to race on your streets because that would make your customers, the majority who don't want to have racers or to race themselves, the majority of your customers would get angry and upset. Uh, and so that would not be a conflict in a residential area. People who wanted to race would have their own specialized uh, roads or racetracks somewhere else. Well, I presented it because it's a bit of a straw man because it shows that there's an obvious conflict there and that the majority of the people, the people that do not subscribe to the racing cars in residential areas would raise up and say, you're not doing it in our neighborhood. Go to the racetrack. And no, they no, they wouldn't. Sorry, they, they wouldn't would do that. Sorry, they wouldn't do that. If people were concerned about racing or drunk driving or whatever, they would, uh, they would um, uh, only sign up with a road company that would not allow racing on the roads, right? And, and what that means is that when the road company wants to build the road, they would have to go to investors. And the investors would say, well, how are you going to keep your customers satisfied? They'd say, well, we polled the majority of people and they don't want to drive people. They want people racing on the streets. So we're going to have a contract that says no racing on our streets. And if you do race on our streets, you won't be allowed unless you pay the fine to come back on those streets or whatever. So uh, that would not be an after the fact. That would be something negotiated long before the first shuffle went into the ground to build the road. Well, let's say that there is some situation that you could not have foreseen what was going to happen. I mean, who saw this whole derivatives mess coming before it actually came to fruition? We Quite always a few knew people, that I the think. financial industry. Well, they did, but could we have guessed it back in the 30s? I doubt it. The 30s. So there, there are things that evolve as people's understanding of things evolve, and there are things that you just can't plan for. You know, so there's always going to be the, that certain segment of, of society that's going to try and get ahead or get it over on somebody else. And there's always going to be that larger segment of society that's going to, you know, say, we're not going to deal with this anymore. We don't want to have it anymore. And it's not, I think that the way that we've been handling that up until now is that majority comes along and says, there needs to be a law. And the more people get into that sort of cycle where the majority can come in and say, there needs to be a law. Well, derivatives may be wrong today, but they may not be wrong 20 years from now when they serve a very different and viable purpose when the, when, you know, the nature of money changes. You never know. I guess that's what I'm trying to capture. You never know. And you can't have one group, the majority now, deciding what's going to be right forever. And whenever you have this monopoly on morality... Monopoly on the imposition of morality. That's where we get into problems. So I, I'm not sure that there's a there's a conclusion to the whole thought other than it just kind of feels right. The internet is a wonderful example of the democratic nature of interest. You know, people kind of float around and they choose what they like from any given point. What's hot today may not be hot tomorrow. I'm sorry to interrupt you again, just to be precise. The Internet is not an example of democracy, but of the free market. Because in democracy, we vote for a, a, a violently imposed solution, which is imposed by, you know, generally it's considered by the majority or the minority. But that's not anything to do with the Internet, right? The Internet has nothing to do with democracy, again, unless I've missed my, my understanding completely. But it is, uh, it is an example of voluntarism or the free market. Well, could we say that there is a... Uh uh, there's a democracy in the PTA, 
where it doesn't, it's not really that they're deciding, you know, uh, how we're going to impose force or aggression. They're more just deciding, are we going to sell cakes or cookies? You know, it's not, it, it, democracy is just what is the majority will of the people. You could say democracy in government is that it's this, uh, this majority aggression, or you could say, oh, well, so I see what you're, so you're sort of saying like, uh, if most people prefer iPods, that's like democracy because they're voting with their dollars. But I, I just don't think right. you want to use the same word for the imposition, the violent imposition of, uh, of force, uh, versus, uh, you know, me buying an iPod and you can go and buy a Zoom or whatever you want. I just, I think you, again, I'm just annoyingly, I think it's really important to be precise in your terms and not to mix up terms which represent the initiation of violence like democracy with those which specifically reject the initiation of violence such as the free market. I just don't think you want to use a word in its opposite in the same kind of way, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I, and I agree with you. It, uh, we, words have meanings. I agree. Well, okay, so if we, if we were just going to take the whole concept of is there is there a way, I mean, if we, okay, we were going to play through what could happen, you know, the more statism dies, the more the economy dies, the more that people are not trusting the dollar as the reserve currency. And let's say that if you played that forward, and there's kind of this inevitable collapse of the dollar at some point in the near future, you're going to have the federal government with all their massive debt and all the individual states that aren't. And they're going to be stable, and whenever the, the Fed comes down and says, you have to bow to our will, you're either going to have, you know, it's like a star collapsing. You've either got, it's going to condense down into a black hole, and it's just going to suck up everything from all the surrounding states, or it's going to explode supernova style. And you're going to have all these little stars forming out of that mass. And so these little stars are going to be the individual states disregarding whatever the Fed says, they say, you're totally irrelevant at this point. We're going to come up with our own systems. And that's kind of the, the end that I'm hoping for, if that's the way this is all going. And that's why these conversations are necessary, because if that happens, you've got 50, 50 different groups that are going to be deciding what's right for the people locally. And if those people say, well, we kind of want to form our system, this, we want to have this kind of separation between government and business. But the state over there, they really like socialism or communism, so they can do what they want. But that variety, and it's all linked together, and they're all next to each other, um, those almost uh, spontaneous structures can arise from it if people realize we have the power to decide this stuff for ourselves now. We can kind of, if we want to be, you know, you know, the Methodist group of Florida and rise up and we're going to be some authority in Florida, but we're also going to have the government of Florida. And we're also going to have the financial brethren of Florida. And they're going to kind of have their own little rules and regulations for finance. And you're going to have the, you know, the industrial workers of Florida. And they're going to kind of rise up and have their own little negotiating bodies for you know, manufacturing and production. I think if people got that into their mind, that they actually do have the authority to do things like that if in, in the vacuum that would be there. I think that's where you would actually arrive at some form of less aggression. I don't think you're ever going to get rid of total competition between people. I don't think it's possible. All right. It's now, let me just stop you there. Uh, and I, I just want to make sure I get to the other caller. So I really do appreciate that. So uh, if I understand it rightly, you're saying that uh, if there is a collapse of uh, economic strength or even perhaps of martial strength at the 
federal level that we'll have greater competition among states or cantons for, uh, you know, possibilities of more freedom. Now, historically, um, I would say, I'm not going to claim to be an expert of that this is an exhaustive answer, but I'll try and keep it short. Historically, I think you're right and you're wrong. Historically, you're right in that when a uh, a central authority collapses, whether you're talking about the Roman Empire or the, the Habsburgs or the, the Russian Empire at the end of the 1980s, um, more freedom does accrue to the local level, right? So your average farmer was more free after the collapse of the Roman Empire than he was before. It's true that he generally rolled into a kind of serf-like existence, but serfdom was much better than 20 years forced service in the military with very little chance of survival or coming back and having anything left of your farm. So uh, there is a diminishment of tyranny when a central uh, a state uh, goes through a significant shrinkage, but there generally does not seem to be an expansion of freedom anywhere close to where it was in the early part of that state. So while it's true that things will not be as bad if, if, if and when the federal government in the United States has some sort of significant setback, things will not be as bad as they were before, but they sure, sure as heck aren't going back to uh, any sort of minimal state, uh, at least historically speaking. Uh, that's why I sort of say it's a multi-generational project. So uh, I really appreciate that, those comments. Uh, if you don't mind, I'll just move on to the next caller. And thank you so much, yeah, yeah. Uh, Chris, for calling in. Thank you. And just a reminder, if you want to uh, uh, check them out, uh, freedomainradio.com forward slash free. There's a whole bunch of free PDFs and um, MP3 files that uh, you can listen to or read that I think you will find uh, interesting or instructive in, in this realm. So uh, James is a uh, laywinder uh, back in our orbit. Laywinder, are you there? Uh, do you hear me? Yes, we can, can hear you. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, sorry, good. we should have oh, mentioned great. that it's, uh, Sunday is not Mime Day, uh, but uh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, it's Laywinder, by the way, but that's fine. Uh, I just wanted to go back like uh, towards the beginning of the show when you guys were talking about education. Uh, you know, it, just in my lifetime, I've seen the education system go so far downhill. And uh, my sister uh, teaches high school down in uh, Allentown. And uh, she's been doing that for about 20 years now. And she, you know, she's even disgusted with, with what, you know, the, the, the government tells them they have to, the things they have to teach. And, and they're, they're really not getting anywhere with these kids, you know, and they're not preparing them for, for life or for college. I mean, it, it, years ago, it was hard to get, harder to get into college than it is now. And, and now just about, you know, if, as long as you have the money, you can go to college and, and you're not, you're really not learning anything about American history or, 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 you know, uh, world history in general. They, they, they tend to focus on, you know, America itself and not, you know, the whole world, you know, as a whole. And, uh, you know, it's just, the, the the people I see that are graduating are, are just you know you, you ask them basic things and and they just have no idea you know yeah I mean if you you ask a um, a high school graduate or even a university graduate what is the difference between truth and falsehood they wouldn't be able to answer to you and and to me that is something you would do in kindergarten in any because what the hell is right. the point of being taught anything if you don't know the difference between true and false but of course people who are teaching you propaganda never want you to know the philosophical distinction between truth and falsehood because then you'll see through the ghosts of their petty illusions, right? Exactly. I mean, you talk to them about the Constitution and they just have this glazed over look in their eyes and 
like, well, don't you know anything about this? Or Yeah, it's either a ship or something to do with health, I think. Yeah. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, it, it, it's just, I mean, it, it's ridiculous, you know. And, and like, I, I try to enlighten people as much as I can. I, even my own daughter, you know, she still, she graduates this year from high school. And, uh, I mean, I'm constantly quizzing her on stuff that, that, it's her age that, that, that I knew and she just doesn't know. No, I think I think you're absolutely right. And there's another thing that is going on, I think, as well. And I'm going to do a true news on this. So this is a very I will keep this under under a minute, minute and a half, which may be of interest to you. Uh, I mean, there's a kind of sequence that occurs, right, uh, um, which has resulted in a couple of things occurring for children in the classroom. One, of course, is ADHD and all of those associated. You know, I'm I'm no right. doctor, or no psychologist, but this is just sort of amateur opinion hour. But um, uh, there's problems with uh, children's attention spans and there's problems with obesity and, and, and cruelty and all this kinds of stuff that has, uh, has been going mm -hmm. on. And, and the, the, the causality seems to be pretty clear, although it's not often discussed. I mean, why is there so much uh, obesity within children? Well, it's almost exclusively to do with uh, a lack of sleep, right? When you lack Ooh. sleep, you can't process sugar and efficiently. You can't process uh, uh, your growth hormones are, are diminished. And so uh, children are facing a huge problem with, with lack of sleep. And why are they facing a lack of sleep? Because both parents in general are working. And if both parents are working, you don't want to come home after 10 hours right. away from your kid and then be the heavy bundling him into bed within half an hour of getting home. So uh, also because um, uh, the more and more people are able to get into colleges and want to avoid the economy in particular areas, um, there's greater competition for college, which means that more extracurricular activities are required for the resume of anyone who wants to get into a good college, which again means uh, means right. less sleep. Because there's less teaching being done in the classroom, there's more studying that needs to be done outside the classroom, which again means uh, means less sleep. And uh, there have been some significant right. studies done that you can uh, boost uh, by up to two grades. Uh, you can get two grades better performance out of a child who gets one hour extra of sleep a night and uh, children on average mm -hmm. are getting an hour less of sleep a night than they did 30 years ago and these all go back to you know all the way back to statism why are both people in the workforce well because taxes are so high why are taxes so high well because you know shortly after women got the vote uh, you got all these social programs right and it goes all the way back this domino back but the, you know who, who the people who suffer always under statism are the most vulnerable, the children, the poor, the old, the sick, they're the ones who suffer the most. In the long run, in the short run, yep. they get some benefits, but in the long run, uh, it is just brutal to those. And that makes teaching children who come from single-parent homes or come from homes where both people are working who aren't getting enough sleep and have resultant, right, ADHD, sorry, ADHD or attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder is very similar in many ways to sleep deprivation, uh, as is what is generally mm -hmm. considered to be the hallmarks of adolescence, uh, irritability uh, and depression, lack of concentration uh, and tiredness, right? <laughs> These are all just symptoms of sleep deprivation. So there's a strong case to be made that what we call adolescence and its growing problems is simply the result of sleep deprivation, which goes right back to family, status and both parents working, which makes teachers' jobs that much harder. I agree. And plus brought up a good point about what you know the ADHD and all this I mean 20 25 years ago you you've never heard of this you know they would have called you hyperactive you know or, or whatever and and uh, you know the way they're drugging the kids today I mean my in my daughter's class I, I, I bet you 40 percent of the kids are on Ritalin or, or some other you know drug which is nothing but speed 
You right, I mean? and, and this is what we were talking it, about at the beginning, how when the government fails the children, the government lexes the children. Well, when schools and families right. and society as a whole is failing the children, the children are drugged. And that is, again, in 200 years in the future, they're just going to look back at that and wonder, what the frack were we thinking as a culture that this was our solution? Yeah. I agree, 100%. Well, look, when, when we agree, it's usually a good time to stop talking because, you know, that way we won't come across yeah. that disagree. So that sounds good. Thank you so much for calling in. And um, if you're, was it your sister who teaches? Uh, she teaches English Lit. Yeah. If she ever did want to, I, I certainly would be interested in talking to a teacher. Uh, maybe if she ever wanted to, uh, to, to chat, I would certainly like to get more of a view inside the schools. Um, but, you know, we could always mask her voice and turn her into some sort of reptilian alien overlord or something if she didn't want to be identified. But uh, I am always happy to talk to, uh, uh, to people who are in the system to find out what's going in there. Because as you may or may not know, I mean, there have been a number of documentaries that have been tried to be done about the U.S. educational system. But the school boards never let the cameras inside the classroom. Uh, and that, to me, is absolutely right. criminal. Absolutely criminal. I agree. Uh, that uh, that the, the, yep, the society right. that pays for these goddamn schools can't even have a camera inside. That, to me, is, you know, that, that people don't look at that and just say, we have to change our society. Again, it's just, uh, it's, in the future, they'll be amazed. But, you know, it just, it seems natural to us in a way. Oh, well, that's the, they'll, they'll say, well, we have to protect the identity of the children, and, which is bullshit, but, you know. Yeah, you can pixelate that stuff out if you want or whatever. That's no biggie. That's no biggie. What they're doing is they're protecting right. people from seeing what actually goes on in the classrooms. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to let her know. I'm sure she'd probably be pretty interested in doing that. Yeah, or if she wants to, to, to write something anonymously, uh, I would be happy to read it. I just, I'm really quite fascinated, and, I mean, I just remember most of the teachers that I had, both in... Uh, High school, uh, junior high school and college, and I went to uh, four different institutions of higher learning. Well, that doesn't sound too good, does it? <laughs> I went to four different institutions of higher learning, <laughs> and I went to schools, a variety of public and private schools on, on uh, two different continents, and uh, man, they all sucked. I had like maybe one, one good teacher that I can remember, but even he was, uh, was pretty, pretty volatile, but uh, at least he was passionate, yeah. if not necessarily uh, always coherent, but uh, it is really, really sad. So Yeah. Well, I went to Catholic school, and I, I had the nuns, and they had the rulers, so you kind of either learned or you, <laughs> you you got beat, you know. So, But that doesn't happen anymore, supposedly, so. No, that is uh, that is true. And again, this is, uh, I know that uh, when I went to uh, to school, I mean, we were getting caned. Uh, I was six when yeah. I first went to boarding school. You'd get caned, man. That was just savage. And, uh, like, you couldn't sit down for, like, a week and uh, um, I knew kids uh, who grew up here who got the ruler right on the back of the hand, which, again, stings and is yeah. terrifying and humiliating. And that, you know, th this is part of the progress that is occurring within society that, uh, you know, children are just not viewed as recalcitrant and difficult beasts to be tamed through violence. At least not it's not it's not an institutional view anymore. And I think for that, we can be grateful to uh, people who've really fought. Right for uh for protection of the rights of children over time uh we just have to go you know we have to keep pushing that envelope to make the world a better and better place and recognize that it's not just about I, not hitting children but proactively teaching them about the value of peace and voluntarism i agree and day thanks for having me on guys well, thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. Uh, it was great. Uh, you didn't have to correct me on anything. I didn't have to correct you on anything, which means we're both perfect, baby. So <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> I appreciate that. 
And uh, do shoot me, uh, you can shoot me an email from the website if your sister ever wanted to, to, to get anything off her chest. And I would, of course, promise to keep it completely uh, anonymous. And I would hope that, you know, as an interviewer, I would get a good grade. I would bring an apple. That's really what I'm saying. So. <laughs> okay. I'll tell her that. Thanks All right. Thanks. Thanks. Take care. Well, I think we're dry on callers. So if you want to call in now, we have, uh, 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 we have room. Uh, 347-633-9636. Or you can look up uh, James on Skype. He goes by Spandex Candy Apples with olive oil. Uh, and uh, it's O-Y-L, like olive oil from Popeye. So just make sure that you look that up correctly. Uh, so um, is, that, is that right? Did I get that right, James? Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. And if he, if he answers saying, hello, you've, you're on Free Domain Radio, but instead says, hi, what are you wearing? Uh, then uh, get your visa ready because that's uh, – well, let me just say you're, you're in for quite a ride. Uh, talking about visas, what about the immigration policy? <laughs> well, that's an open-ended question. What about there shouldn't, it? There shouldn't be one, right? You should be you should be free to live wherever you want in the world, provided that you produce. Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, I've I've said this before. Um, immigration is just a twenty-dollar word for moving, right? I mean, I, I can't move from here to Buffalo, but if you're in Buffalo, you can move from Buffalo to San Diego or Buffalo down to. Uh, uh, someplace in Texas, right, Houston or something, which is a much greater distance, right? But there's this arbitrary line in the sand between the two different tax farms, which means I can't, right? And this is funny, you know, people always say, oh, love it and leave it or whatever, right? Uh, you know, if you don't like the country, you can leave. It's like, you know, I really can't leave. I really, really can't leave easily, right? Because uh, it costs a lot of money to leave. There's a huge amount of paperwork. Sometimes you can't leave a country and take all of your money with you. Uh, if you go to the new country, there are all of these restrictions. Like, you really can't leave. I mean, I would be more open and accepting of the argument of love it or leave it if there were no uh, legal or financial or status barriers between moving countries. But it's not the case at all, right? There is no such thing as if you don't like it, leave it. Because everywhere you go, um, you're going to be controlled and bullied in some form. And you're not going to be able to leave with everything you have now here anyway. so. Mm. And immigration, uh, as I've experienced, is just another way of stealing money from you. Go on. Well, I emigrated here from the UK uh, to, to the United States, Florida, because um, my wife didn't want to live in a um, socialist country. <laughs> well, not a socialist uh, – more socialist than what it is here in the United States – um, just, you know, it's become it's becoming more and more socialist here. You know, uh, as the days go on, and uh, when I came here, you know, you have to pay for this, you have to pay for that. You know, you have to give money to the government for this, and you have to appear at their, um, you know, um, places to be fingerprinted, photographed, and uh, now if I want to become a citizen here in the United States, um, I have to go through all these biometric. Um, uh, you know, I have to submit to biometric um, tests where I have to go and walk walk up and down in front of a camera, put my face in front of a camera, move my eyeballs around and things like that. It's just a way of uh, uh, Big Brother uh, tracking you, you know, further should you – should they want to, you know, call you in one day, um, you know, for whatever reason, they can, you know, look for you in, you know, inner cities with these cameras and it, you know, picks you up by the way that you're walking, you know, the way that you're swinging your arms or the way you're moving your head or your eyes. And uh, that now is $600 to go and submit to that. Is that right? Wow. I didn't realize they were doing all this biometric stuff for sure. Yeah, go to the, um, it's not INS anymore. It's um, 
I forget what it is, but if you Google, you know, government um, immigration, it'll bring up the website. And then, you know, um, if you look at, you know, look up the information for what you have to do now to, you know, be an immigrant or to become a citizen, uh, that's one of the conditions now. Yeah. More control. Yeah, more control. And it is, of course, a reminder, right? There's this uh, chilling context. It's It's a reminder. We own you. Right. I mean, we've got you recorded. You know, we had you walk with a cucumber up your ass uh, if you didn't already come with one. And we know how that walk looks. And so it's just it's you know, it's they might as well put a brand on your forehead. Right. So uh, I think that is uh, uh, that is I had a question from the chat room. Do we have any questions from the other chat rooms? Let me check. Um, don't see anything. If there's any questions in the blog talk radio uh, chat room, um, please type them now. I'm going to go over and look at. The um, peace, freedom, prosperity. Um, well, I just I'll start then, and you can interrupt me if there's a note. Somebody has asked um, uh, my daughter her capacity to identify and pursue needs, her capacity to negotiate with herself and you. Compare her with that what you've seen in other children. Describe what you think is the difference, all in three minutes or less. So I'll just uh, touch on that while we're seeing if they're uh, waiting for other callers or anything else is coming up. Um, well, I mean, the first thing to say is that she's, uh, I mean, she's fantastic, amazing, wonderful, and delightful. And uh, she is also, um, uh, it, it, it is a real, it's a real privilege to, to know her, right? I mean, uh, she has a small frame and a hugely big personality. She has uh, um, uh, a kind of uh, uh, integrated and very strong will that is actually very gentle. And that to me is something very, very interesting that I've seen as a, as a father, is that, uh, um, I mean, I, I've done everything that I can to to help facilitate her will, to help her, like, when she was uh, six weeks old, I was teaching her how to scooch around the floor so that she would get more control over her environment and not feel like such a sack of potatoes and so on. So I've really tried to give her as much possible control over her environment. Uh, you know, it's a fine line as a parent, of course, where you want your child to be safe, but you don't want your child to be restricted. So my solution is I just crawl everywhere with her, at least it did for a while. She doesn't need that anymore. Uh, and you know, so she doesn't fall and she's pretty She's very good now. She doesn't, doesn't fall. Um, that will change once she starts walking without furniture. But for now we have a, a week or two of respite. Um, so she has a very, very strong will. And, and it's interesting to me, I was initially a little startled by that, the strength of her will. Like when she wants something, you really want something. But what's interesting is that, um, it's not fierce. It's not, it's not aggressive. It's very assertive. Like she wants something, she will go for it. Um, and like if, if she's on one side of me and she wants something that's on the other side, she'll just, she'll just leap up and do a body slam on my belly and start crawling over uh, and, and allowing me to enjoy my lunch, uh, you know, a second or sometimes even a third time. But um, a very strong uh, will, but the will is not aggressive, right? So if, I, if, if she wants something that she can't have, then I'll take it away uh, and I will try to give her something else that she can have and enjoy. And she's generally fine with that. When she's, you know, the typical thing for a new parent is when your, your baby is on the change table and you want to change her or you want to put on pants and, you know, it's, it's literally trying to sew a button onto a blender because <laughs> she's just going full boogie, twisting, turning and so on. And uh, I mean, I don't fight with her. Uh, so, uh, like we were at the pool the other day and I took her into the bathroom to change and I had to put her on the sink cause there was no change table. And she just began to cry when I put her on the sink, right? Uh, not right, on the ledge between the sink. And so for me, it's like, okay, well, I won't change you here. And we ended up changing her outside, but she was more comfortable. Like, I'm just not going to, I'm just not going to fight with her. So if she's on the change table 
and she's, you know, kicking and twisting and turning. It's like, okay, like I'll get your diaper on because I think that's important. But uh, I'm not going to fight with you if you don't want to wear clothes right now. I could just, what's the point? I don't need to impose my will on her about something that's important. I mean, if she's going to get her inoculations, yes, she will have to get her inoculations. Uh, but uh, we don't, uh, I don't fight with her about that. And I think that helps a lot, right? Uh, it helps a lot in terms of negotiation because I'm always trying to give her something that's enjoyable when I take something away and there are phases, you know, she, she has this, gone through this phase where she wants to pick up fluff from the carpet and put it in her mouth, right? So, I mean, we're vacuuming every day, <laughs> this kind of stuff. And uh, so I have to, I mean, want to take the fluff out of her hand. Occasionally, if she's got a big piece, I'll go into her mouth and, and get the fluff out and she doesn't like that in particular. But she's fine afterwards because... Um, it's really the exception rather than the rule. And she's very, very sensitive as well. She bit uh, my wife, and my wife was really startled. And uh, um, I won't say what was going on, but you can imagine. And uh, my daughter burst into tears because she was just, I mean, my wife obviously didn't yell at her or anything, which is like, ow, because uh, she was surprised. And uh, she was very upset. Uh, Isabel, Isabella was very upset by that. And um, uh, so I think that was very important as well, her sensitivity. I don't think it's because she got that she caused mom pain, but it was something very different and startling. So I do think that uh, uh, the negotiation is important. I'm very, very sensitive the degree to which I can impose my will upon her. Like I can pick her up and put her in a crib. I can pick her up and put her in a playpen and she's completely helpless. She can't get out. She has, um, she has all these teeth marks along the top of her crib. Um, the and like, you know, like Freddie Mercury biting down on a ham sandwich, she goes down into that, into that crib, not out of anger or anything. She just enjoys chewing things because she's teething. And uh, so I just, I have found it really, really important to not impose my will upon her and to, to negotiate, not to grab things from her, to say no in a firm voice. And now that actually works when she's going someplace she shouldn't. If I say, it's Bella, no, then she stops. Uh, she's not frightened. She just stops and turns around and then we'll go somewhere else. And that has worked out beautifully. Uh, and so far, uh, so far, so good. You know, it's, it, you, the greater the power disparity, the more gentle your touch needs to be, in my opinion. And there's, as I've always said, there's no greater power disparity between my daughter and myself at this time. So the very, very light touch is all that's needed because I am, what, 15 times her size and I have all the power and I can, you know, I can go for a walk and she can't even get out of her crib, right? So uh, I have found that to, to, to be as absolutely gentle and respectful as possible in what I need from her and what I can provide to her has been really, really helpful. Uh, and I think that I would just strongly suggest that you, you need such a light touch. I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, given how small she is and how dependent she is, if I were to yell at her, I mean, I'm 15 times her size. It would be like, uh, I don't know, God poking me in the forehead. I mean, it would just be crazy. So a very, very light touch, I think, is really, really important. Uh, and so far, that's, that's worked perfectly. Uh, a couple of questions and comments. Um, one from Richard D. How about talking a bit about how our jobs and careers may become less boring and more exciting and satisfying if statism goes away? And one says, uh, Juan, should I say, says, uh, here's a question. How wrong is marijuana use? How wrong is marijuana use? Well, um, I mean, the, the, let me take the second question first. And, you know, full disclosure, I've never smoked marijuana, so I, I have no idea what the effects Maybe are. Maybe you as, should try it one day. No, I'm never <laughs> going to try it. I'm never going to try illicit drugs in any way, shape, or form. But um, uh, it's not, to me, it's not morally wrong unless 
someone's dependent on you, right? Like if you're a parent, you know, smoking marijuana, it's like getting drunk, right? You just can't do it because you've you got kids in the house or whatever, right? So to me, there's something around that that's not particularly great. Um, I'm just I'm just not a fan of drug use. I just think that uh, drug use is, uh, uh, is, is a bad way to solve problems. I think that if you're a happy person, you don't need drugs. I think if you're an unhappy person, you need to deal with that unhappiness. And I'm a big, big, big proponent of, of you know, personal therapy with a competent professional. Uh, you need to, um, you know, you don't take heroin for a toothache. Yes, it will make you feel better, but the rot goes deeper. And if you're unhappy or depressed or something's missing and you feel like you need the boost of drugs, I just think it's a cheap way to go about it. I can understand it, right? Because it is a self-medication that's easy and, and effective in the short run. But uh, I think that uh, it is not a productive and responsible way to deal with, with personal issues. I'm, you know, as a philosopher, I'm, I'm Socrates 101, right? Know thyself. Self-knowledge is the foundation of all wisdom and you can't claim to know the world if you don't know yourself. Uh, so, um, so I strongly urge people to not, uh, not, uh, take mind altering substances and, uh, to, uh, to get, uh, professional help, to get therapy, to get whatever they need to deal with the personal issues that they have. That's going to be much more productive and satisfying in the long run. So it's not morally wrong unless someone's dependent on you. I just think it's, it's not productive. Um, Talking as far about as how marijuana though, it can be used talking about marijuana though it can be used for multiple uh, purposes i mean you, you there's over 4000 uses that you can use uh, marijuana for i mean you can build a house you know from the ground upwards the only thing that you can't make from it is the actual electrical cable I don't but think can, that that's what I don't think the guy's a construction worker at talking I, about. I, I know, but I'm just, I'm just saying, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, uh, you know, addressing this argument that uh, we have government with the, you know, the drug law, you know, the war on drugs. Oh yeah, it should be completely legal. Uh, there's no question that that the illegality of the drugs drives addiction because when the profit is so high, it pays for you to get people addicted to the drug. So I completely agree with you that it should be perfectly legal and that would be the best way to keep it out of out of people's hands, right? I mean, when and this is a statistic from a while back, so I got it from an old Harry Brown show. Uh, forgive me if it's not perfect, but it's close. Um, that uh, before uh, heroin was made illegal in the United in the United Kingdom, there were like 500 addicts and you could get three three hits for 10 pennies, right? And then you could get one hit for 5 pounds after it was made illegal. And they're like 100,000 addicts, right? And, and so as you raise the profits of something, then people will start to give you free samples. Nobody gives you free samples three for a dime. But when it's, uh, you know, it's worth getting you addicted otherwise. So uh, it, is, uh, it is catastrophic. I mean, the, 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 the banning of drugs has caused more addicts and more destruction in society than any other single measure. Uh, the same thing, of course, occurred with alcohol under prohibition. So it absolutely should be completely legal. Of course, there are, as far as I understand it, for the treatment of glaucoma and nausea during chemotherapy and other things, there are legitimate medicinal uses for marijuana. But as a recreational problem solver, you know, it sucks like a vacuum. That would be my uh, my perspective. All right, let's go to uh, Richard D's question. And then also we have a question from uh, David Allen as well, who's in the blog talk radio chat room. Uh, Richard D says, how about talking a bit about how our jobs and careers may become less boring and more exciting and satisfying if statism goes away? Well, I will give you an example called uh, me, which would be <laughs> where I would start, right? Um, I am, of course, in a completely unregulated uh, medium and unstate controlled medium. There's no union here. There's no uh, CRTC or uh, I don't know what is the equivalent 
until that in, tank arrives outside your house until the tank yeah but but there is uh, so i'm you know and i am uh, uh this is the the happiest and best career that i've had and i've had some very happy and exciting careers uh, in my life so uh, so, uh, you know, the fewer regulations means more competition. Uh, those who are excellent will rise to the top. Uh, you know, fewer amounts of harassment, fewer stupid laws, fewer restrictions, uh, which means uh, that the public is actually better protected. And, uh, the, the, you know, with greater competition uh, comes a, a very challenging and exciting need to commit to excellence, right? So um, most podcasters give away their material for free. I do, of course, but most podcasters don't ask people to, to fund their uh, Twinkie habit. Uh, and by Twinkie, I mean the uh, dessert. Um, so, uh, so I have that challenge, right? What, what I have to come up with, you know, cool and new and fun and exciting ways to communicate about a very dull topic called philosophy, um, and a way to make it, uh, you know, appealing to people and and to bring people in. And uh, that is because I'm, uh, you know, in a wild competition with an almost infinite offering, completely free. And, and and that's just in the world of podcasting, let alone uh, everything else out there that you could consume, which a lot of which, you know, if you download stuff uh, against the law, a lot of that stuff is is free as well. Right. So uh, asking people to to sort of fund uh, what it is that I do while giving everything away for free is about as non statist as you can get. And I can tell you that it has produced a very, very exciting and stimulating and, and frightening <laughs> career. So I think that um, fewer controls means greater competition, uh, which means greater innovation, which means more excitement and more challenge and more reinvention, which I think is really the fundamental stuff of, uh, you know, staying at least young at heart. Okay. Uh, in the Blog Talk Radio uh, chat room again, uh, David Allen, uh, in parentheses, iPolitics says, in your perfect society, will the volunteer policeman not stop a thief entering your house if you opt out of paying his compensation? And then oh, goes it's on one of say, these questions, right? Right. And then right. he goes on to say something about uh, your society will end up as a as an oligarchy. People will fill the power vacuum that will occur, and they will rule with absolute power. Yeah, no, I mean, look, I, I'll, I'm not going to touch the content of these questions because my will to live will drain completely out of my feet uh, if if I have to go through another one of these. And it's not, no disrespect to the listener. They're great questions. But, uh, you know, I, I, this is why I wrote all these free books explaining how this sort of stuff works. Um, what I would say, though, is that, you know, my I, I experience a little bit of annoyance, uh, even at the tone of the question. And that, that doesn't mean that, that the, the person's being annoying. I'm just sort of saying what I experienced. You know, when uh, when someone uh, when someone says in your perfect society and that to me is really, really strange. Right. Uh, you know, so, for instance, in the 16th century when Francis Bacon and he wasn't the first, but he codified it really well. When Francis Bacon laid down the basics of the scientific method, we don't refer refer to Francis Bacon's science. Right. Because that means that it's some sort of prejudice or bigotry on his part or something. No, we just refer to it as science. Right. So it's not my perfect society. It's in a moral society that recognizes the value of not initiating the use of force and respects property. Right. Uh, That that either is a rational basis for a society or it's not. If it is a rational basis for society, then it's not my society and neither is it perfect. It's just valid. It's just true. It's just moral. And if it's not if it's not rational, then, yes, it would be a kind of bigotry. But then it's not a perfect society because it's irrational. Right. So. When people say your perfect society, Steph's perfect society, uh, that to me is automatically diminishing to to the argument that's being put forward. 
And uh, another example I would give is that, um, oh, a number of people, Ricardo and, and John Stuart Mill and uh, Adam Smith, of course, these people all put forward the, um, uh, the, the basic tenets of, of the free market. And this goes back to, there was a book I read years and years ago called England's Treasure by Foreign Traffic, which was written, I think, in the 17th century, where people put forward arguments about why uh, opening uh, England's trade uh, would increase England's wealth and thus give her the wealth to create an empire, as I talked about in the debate with Michael Badnarik. But we don't say Adam Smith's perfect society. We say a free market economy, right? Or an economy based on the non-initiation of force and respect for property rights, right? So the moments that you identify an idea with a thinker, like Steph's perfect society or whatever, you're, you, you don't really understand what is meant by a rational argument, right? Uh, two plus two is four, or, you know, it's not some guy's argument, right? It's either valid or it's not. And if it's valid, then associating it with him is sort of pointless. And if it's not, then it's not a rational argument, right? So uh, I think that's really, really important to to understand that if you want to get the respect of, of people who are working in the field of rational empiricism and, and philosophy, that uh, you need to focus on the limitations of the argument rather than say, well, in your perfect society. Anyway, I just said it's a minor bugaboo of mine because I hear that quite a lot. And it always feels annoying to hear because it's, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what is meant by a rational argument. Um, the power vacuum, I mean, I've answered this a million times before. Do we have any other questions? Otherwise, I'll just give a closing. Yeah, uh, there is another question. Um, uh, how does currency work in a stateless society? Um, I imagine ultimately it would uh, converge, uh, converge but how would that happen and how to stop people from printing their own? Well, that's a great, uh, a great question. And again, what I always suggest is put yourself in the shoes of someone who's trying to sell a currency system to a skeptical public, right? So if I were out there trying to sell a currency system to a skeptical public, I would say, I'm never going to inflate this currency. And here's how you know I'm never going to inflate this currency. And I would show them all the mathematics I have about the growth of, of the value in the uh, growth of value and productivity within society, how that translates to extra currency. You don't, I mean, ideally, you don't want currency either to inflate or to deflate because the, both of those throw off future economic calculations in the realm of, of interest and, and deferred payments and so on. So I would say, here's how I have solved the problem of inflation and deflation, and you'd go through all your Austrian analyses, and you'd say, well, if the economy grows by 5%, that is the 5% that's represented by my economy, I'm only going to grow the currency 5%. You can always be guaranteed that my currency will be within 1% of its uh, original value. And if it's not, if it goes outside of that, I'm going to pay you $20,000 or whatever, right, just to make some incentive. So you would have uh, the challenge of selling to people. And of course, I don't know how all of this would work, but this is the challenge. You would have to make sure that it's stable. You'd have to make sure that it's really hard to counterfeit. Uh, and that's not too, uh, too impossible to think of, of ways in which that could be done, right? I mean, you have currency simply tied with um, some sort of biometric, right? Uh, eye, eye scan or fingerprint or something like that. So you have to kind of put both together. And uh, so all of that could sort of be done. But I think it's really, really important to remember, and I'm just sort of close off with this in the last few minutes. You don't want to look at the future of society and mistake it for what goes on in the present, right? Uh, in other words, you don't want to say, well, blacks are lazy, and therefore, if we free them from being slaves, they're never going to get any jobs. It's like, well, blacks are lazy because they're slaves, right? I mean, so they're not lazy. They're depressed, right? They're like suicidal because they're slaves. So you don't want to mistake 
the the traits of the present for the future, right? So something like counterfeiting comes about because counterfeiting is easier than getting a real job, right? And of course, if you're worried about counterfeiting, the last thing you ever want is a government because governments are based on counterfeiting, right? So in a future society, let's just 200 years forward, we're in a society with, uh, with no government. The economy is growing 10 to 15% a year, right? Which is what would occur in an actual free market. The economy is growing 10 to 15% a year. You could work for an hour a day and make enough to support a family of four easily, right? And this is not utopianism. These are all statistics that have been achieved in the free market before, right? So um, uh, like in a genuine free market, 10 to 15% a year can, can occur on a sustainable basis. So you barely have to lift a finger to get a job. And the, the, the tools and the robots and all of this stuff that will be available to you will be something which we can't even comprehend any more than somebody from the 17th century could comprehend an iPod or even this conversation or uh, instantaneous free communications around the world or whatever, right? And so the amount of wealth that you can get a hold of through relatively little effort, you'll be really well educated, you'll be really efficient, your education will be pointed towards economic efficiency so that you will, and there'll be so much wealth in society that it will be fun to have a job because the menial jobs will be done by other stuff. Uh, and <clears throat> so what would be the point of counterfeiting when you can easily work for an hour a day at a fun job and make all the money that you need or half a, uh, half a day or whatever? Uh, so the, the risk of counterfeits will be that much lower because the rewards of working will be that much greater and easier. So, all right, we got two minutes. Uh, I will absolutely take a caller, but you must keep it not with the boxers, but with the briefs. Okay. Uh, caller, you're on the air. Caller from Skype. Oh. Hello. Yeah, make, make it quick. We've only got like a minute and a half left. 90 seconds. There you go. <laughs> What's your question? Hello? Yes, you're on the <laughs> Hello, air. Go, go ahead. ahead. Okay. Um, I had a question about uh, the Constitution class uh, that uh, Michael Badnerick uh, uh, posted on the Internet uh, some time ago. Um, has anyone ever undertook his uh, suggestion that if you get a new car, um, 60 seconds. Not, uh, register, you pay cash for it and... Do not uh, register it with the uh, state because I was uh, thinking of doing something like that. Right. And I mean, if if someone was to do something like that, and you're talking about I mean, the right to travel, right? In, what's that? The right to travel. That's what you're talking about. You're, uh, essentially, yes. I mean, if I'm, I don't think we're going to have enough time to uh, discuss it here today. Yeah, I, I don't I don't have any knowledge about that stuff, uh, but uh, you might want to do some Googling on it, or I'm sure uh, Mr. Badnarik would uh, take a question. Um, I think the understanding is that if you don't register the car, they can't arrest you, or you can go wherever you want or something. I really don't know nothing about the legalities of that, so I don't think I could do anything useful to help you with that. Yeah, I mean, Ten seconds. but if you came into contact with the uh, police, if they decide to pull you over for something... I'm sorry, we're time. absolutely out of time, so I'm going to have to shut you off, but feel free to call back in next week. Uh, although, actually, I, I still won't be able to answer your question next week. But thank you so much for calling in. Thank you so much to all the listeners for uh, the chance to speak in this amazing way about your thoughts and uh, your ideas. It is a true privilege to, to hear you guys talk. It's the hardest working, smartest group that I have ever known. 
uh, and I've known a few. So thank you so much, everybody. Really do appreciate your, your support of Free Domain Radio, your support and excitement around this philosophical conversation. Have yourselves an absolutely wonderful week. I will talk to you soon.